This is Red Flag Radio. My name is Rose Ward, and welcome to um, our second episode on Palestine. And I want to acknowledge, of course, that we are recording on Indigenous land here in Australia, land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we're very happy to welcome back Vashti Fox uh, for this episode. Thanks for coming back, Vashti. Really pleased to be here. And so we had a few listeners um, talking to us after the first episode about wanting to find out some more about um, the history of the Palestinian struggle and I guess the importance of resistance that has existed, uh, you know, uh, for a very long time in Palestine and from the Palestinian people. And I guess today what we want to do is give you a bit of a brief history. So obviously there's a lot uh, going on in the politics of this, in some of the historical moments. I mean, you could spend a whole episode on kind of each of the moments that we're going to touch on today or each of the political um, actors involved in some of these things, but we won't do that. We're just going to try to give you as much as we can in an episode and then if there's other stuff that people want to hear about, let us know. But, of course, um, this is all in the context of the current struggle and I think one of the things that people are talking about is how does the current moment of Palestinian resistance um, look in relation to some of the historical struggles? And I think one of the things that people feel, um, and that has always been the case internationally about Palestine, is that the resistance of the Palestinians is kind of like um, probably the most inspirational national liberation struggle that we've ever seen. Um, that's a big call, but I think that might be true, Vashti. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so we're going to talk about why that might be and what, what that's kind of looked like. So I guess let's go back to start with to kind of prior to Israel being established in 1948. What was happening with Palestinians at that point, I guess? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of useful to go through some of this history by looking at the high points of some of the revolts. And probably the most significant revolt that happened prior to the establishment of the state in 1948 was um, something that's kind of broadly known as the Arab Revolt of 1936. Um, and this was one of the longest lasting and probably most militant um, battles by the Palestinians until, I would say, probably until the first Intifada in the 1980s. And it, it was kind of hugely significant in that some of the political forces that actually emerged from the revolt helped to shape Palestinian politics for decades. Um, so to kind of maybe give a few of the uh, contexts uh, for the revolt, a few of the factors that kind of influenced some of the dynamics of this revolt. Well, first of all, um, there was kind of changing class dimensions in the area that is sort of now known as, as Palestine and, and Israel. Um, increasingly, peasants were being kicked off their historic land and were becoming workers. Um, Arab landlords were immiserating their own peasantry. 
And with more Palestinians living in large towns and there was a new kind of nationalist consciousness which was beginning to develop, um, more young Palestinians were reading newspapers, were engaging with the kind of broader nationalist currents which were developing across the region. Um, and then in 1929, there was obviously a kind of global economic crash and, and this left a big or had a big kind of impact um, on Palestinian society with more and more Palestinians kind of growing um, poor um, while some were growing wealthy, as was the case kind of everywhere across the world. Um, at this point in time, um, Palestine was ruled by a British mandate uh, and this was part of their, the British overall kind of colonial project for the whole region. Um, and um, as part of this project, the British were sponsoring Zionist mi migration to the country, um, partly because they really wanted to uh, build up a population that would be absolutely loyal to them as the colonial power in the region. Um, and they felt like the kind of existing Arab leaderships, which they also had deals with, but um, could be slightly less relied upon than a colonial settler population, which um, was basically kind of an implanted, uh, you know, population. So all of these different kind of factors provided a real powder keg um, and the background um, that resulted in, in one of the most protracted rebellions across British rule um, in the Middle East. So the kind of Initial trigger for the rebellion was the killing of two Jewish settlers, um, and this was followed by kind of tit-for-tat murders of, of two Palestinians. And within a few days, this kind of growing violence sparked off the uprising. At first, young, um, more urban nationalists drove the movement forward, especially because the older forces were actually more reluctant to take on the British. Um, and a general strike was called um, in early April of um, 1936 uh, in Nablus and within weeks it had spread across the entirety of Palestine. And I suppose one of the things I was thinking about this, um, when the differences between when we're talking about this kind of general strike and when we're talking about the general strikes in more urban, advanced urban countries like um, Australia or, you know, when general strikes kind of took place, um, I don't know, in San Francisco. Or, or wherever else, <laughs> yeah, Greece, or Greece or wherever, or yeah. um, you know, we're overwhelmingly kind of just talking about industrial workers or, or workers who kind of work in schools or banks or whatever it is. This kind of general strike um, and indeed the general strike which just happened last week, we're sort of much more talking about a kind of cross-class strike, a strike that shuts down the whole of the economy, um, small businesses, um, and, uh, as well as kind of industrial workers. So this strike in 1936 involved, um, as I said before, small businesses. It involved the non-payment of taxes. It involved the peasant cessation of labour, um, as well as the shutting down of transport, um, hubs, uh, ports, uh, train tracks, um, construction sites and all of those sorts of things. So this this actual strike lasted for about six months, um, which is phenomenal, really. Um, and economic life in much of Palestine was brought to a halt. Um, it was accompanied by huge levels of civil disobedience and attacks on settlers and their property. And I suppose sort of by the middle of, of that year, the, the centre of the revolt had actually shifted from urban areas to the countryside. 
and by the summer, the countryside was absolutely aflame with guerrilla warfare. Um, there was telephone and telegraph communications which were cut. There was a huge oil pipeline which ran from Iraq to Haifa and, and basically that was destroyed. Um, police stations were attacked, railway lines were blown up, roads were mined and, and heaps and heaps of bridges um, were destroyed. Basically, there was an, a, an attempt to kind of destroy all of the infrastructure of British colonial rule um, in Palestine. And in response, um, the British declared martial law. Um, but despite that declaration, the revolt uh, was not crushed. And uh, there was a second peak of the revolt, uh, which occurred in the middle of 1938. And at its height this time around, there was around 7,500 guerrilla fighters uh, fighting both the British mandate forces and also uh, the developing Zionist uh, militias. But as the struggle continued, the um, political struggle took on a real social character and the rural rebels now called for a cancellation of debts uh, that the peasants owed to the rich Arab land owners. And they basically warned any debt collectors and land agents not to visit the villages. They became completely outside of the control of uh, both the British and the kind of rich um, Arab uh, landholders as well. And I think those kind of social aspects are just incredibly important, um, both, you know, as a harbinger of kind of the later class dynamics as they were to develop, but also in terms of kind of understanding the ways that this revolt played out. Um, they were important both in the countryside and in the cities, and they indicated how the strike could have been won by broadening that kind of social rebellion and taking it to its furthest conclusion. Um, but, and this will become something, a theme in this podcast, the Palestinian movement was really divided along class lines. There were sections of the Palestinian movement that were hostile to developing this most radical working class peasant um, base and all of the aspirations that they had. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, there was also landlords who were absolutely horrified by those kind of demands and there was a whole layer of Palestinians who abandoned their homes and fled to a whole range of other safer Arab countries. Other Arab landlords were also more enmeshed within the British mandate system and these had been selling off land um, to Zionist settlers so they were really deeply implicated in the whole um, Zionist project. And all of these divisions led to a political fracturing along uh, both class lines and then between different elements of the wealthy. So there were some who wanted to compromise with the British and the, the Zionist settlers and others who wanted to kind of opportunistically head up this revolt. And as in many subsequent periods of Palestinian history, uh, the kind of absolutely phenomenal amounts of repression were brought down on the heads of the rebels. The yeah, British only say, regained... What, what was the British... Yeah. response to all of this because it sounds mm. like an, yeah, an incredible rebellion but then it's not like the British were um, powerless in 1936. No, no, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, they, they managed to bring in a huge number of kind of other troops and partly um, because they had the British, you know, as yet another indication of their 
um, actual attitudes the British ruling class had um, about by this time cut a deal with um, Hitler and the the German regime so they were kind of they had freed up a bunch of their troops and um, that a lot of these troops were then sent uh, over to Palestine to uh, crush the Palestinian uprising so something I think along the lines of 30,000 trained soldiers were actually in Palestine at this time. Um, the Royal Air Force, the Royal British Air Force, bombed Palestinian villages. Thousands of Palestinians were interned without trial. Really harsh collective punishments were imposed on whole villages. Um, and so between 1938 and 1939, I read um, statistics that suggested that at least one Palestinian was sentenced to death every week, and these were very hmm. public and visible, uh, you know, displays of hostility to the movement. Um, so, as you can imagine, um, the Palestinian movement was quite diminished by the end of this revolt. The brutality of the British had really meant that the Zionists emerged out of the conflict much stronger. Uh, indeed, there was a bunch of the different Zionist paramilitaries which had developed during this period of revolt and they used it effectively as an opportunity to kind of practice uh, their military capacities to develop themselves uh, and by um, the end of the Palestinian revolt many of these um, Zionist militias were um, much more in a position to uh, begin their kind of dual battle both um, you know against the um, last vestiges of kind of British rule in the area and then also against the Palestinians and to begin their broader project of, of ethnic cleansing. Yeah, that, and that's interesting. But that's probably a bit of the history that's le less talked about um, in the context of the run-up to the moment um, that's known as the Nakba in 1948, which people know uh, probably is the historical um, the foundation of the state of Israel and the ethnic cleansing that accompanied it. What was the resistance at that time from the Palestinians? Yeah, well, I mean, there was widespread resistance um, by the Palestinians um, to the attempts by the Zionist militias, the kind of the nascent and developing um, Zionist movement, which it has to be said was kind of simultaneously fighting a very tepid resistance by the British to kind of force them out. Um, but uh, unfortunately, that kind of resistance was very uh, limited and uh, partial and unsuccessful. Uh, there was also a broader um, war by the a series of the other Arab states against um, the formation of Israel, um, but that too was unsuccessful. And so what happened during this period, as many of the red flag listeners would probably know, is that many Palestinians, you know, tens of thousands of Palestinians were driven through force or the threat of force uh, out of their villages and towns. And this created a really significant refugee population that was scattered across many of the neighbouring countries. And many of these uh, refugees, these Palestinian refugees, lived in poverty and as second class citizens. They still identified as Palestinians, um, but they were living in uh, Jordan or in Lebanon uh, or in other kind of other countries around the region. Um, 
as I said before, the kind of the establishment of Israel was also accompanied by this regional war, and the conclusion of that war meant that there were tussles over which powers would actually control or influence which parts of Palestine. So eventually, uh, the Egyptians took effective control over the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank was controlled by uh, Jordan, the Jordanian Hashemite monarchy. Uh, there was also the Palestinian population living inside of the 1948 borders of Israel, many of whom were actually refugees from other parts of Palestine. And all of that history is just to kind of say that um, these, this kind of spreading of the Palestinian population out into these different areas with different experiences and ruled by different forces, uh, you know, meant that there was divisions in the Palestinian movement that leave have, have left all kinds of legacies and that those divisions have led to different political histories, trajectories uh, and um, traditions. And so, you know, I think I, I haven't got time to go into all, all of those different developments, but it is kind of important to know um, that, that um, those divisions existed. And, and what's more, all of those kind of political and geographic distinctions were undergirded as well by um, significant class divisions. Mm. So think, when you think yeah. about the kind of refugee populations um, that were living in the surrounding areas, they were living, living a kind of a quite a different experience in life from other kinds of um, Palestinian refugees, some of whom may have left earlier than the Nakba, who were wealthy, who had, you know, big um, capital investments in a whole variety of banks, um, engineering firms and so on um, throughout the rest of the region. And these refugee populations were extremely combustible um, and, and very politically explosive. Our comrades across the world. That emphasises uh, a point about a Marxist perspective on all of this in that the material conditions of the different sections of the Palestinian populations had an influence mm. on their political viewpoint, right? Mm. And that's what we're saying about that that kind of d division in that period and the spreading out of the population and their, their, then their response to that, like whether you do have to kind of settle with Israel if you have to settle in Israel, you know. So mm. Mm. what about the next period then um, and the kind of political currents that developed out of that? Um, that division. Yeah, well, the the period after the establishment of Israel and then after the conclusion of the Second World War, in fact, saw a, some pretty big transformations in global politics. And the fact that out of the um, Second World War, the British, whose empire had, you know, historically kind of what was that old kind of saying about the sun never set on the British Empire? They ruled so many mm. parts of the globe. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the Second World War, that that kind of power um, had been significantly diminished. And so effectively kind of what you saw in, in many of the, the um, colonies that Britain had previously controlled, uh, the, the, their strength and control over over those countries was was quite weakened. Um, and so there were a whole range of nationalist uprisings um, by populations that had previously been controlled by Britain across the world. Um, and in the Middle East, that kind of led to um, really significant um, radical nationalist movements um, developing. 
and not just nationalist, nationalist movements, but big working class movements um, as well and, um, and communist movements. Um, probably the most significant of those nationalist uprisings for this story here today is um, the Egyptian one. Um, in Egypt, the radical nationalist officer, um, Nasser, came to power uh, in 1958. Um, and, and that had a really significant impact um, on the politics of many of the Palestinians who were living across the region who kind of looked to these successes or, or perceived successes of various nationalist leaders and adopted um, that uh, the strategies of many of these nationalist movements um, for their own. So during the 50s, there was um, also a whole bunch of Palestinians who were, um, as I said before, kind of scattered across the region. Uh, and um, many of these were in universities where there were, um, you know, nationalist ferment kind of going on. And so they kind of developed during this period a real sense that the liberation of the Palestinians was um, bound up in, in the success of these Arab nationalist regimes. And there was a real middle class and, and wealthy Palestinian layer who increasingly sort of oriented to the ruling classes of these Arab countries. Um, some of this kind of changed in around 1967 when uh, there was a war between Israel and the Arab states and Israel won that war and uh, they immediately moved to occupy Gaza and the West Bank and, and that began the period of, of what's now known as of, of those, at least the West Bank being called the occupied territories. And lots of Palestinians who had previously thought that Arab regimes could bring them freedom, could bring them some form of, of um, their own Palestinian state, felt that the Arab states had in fact failed that test. And so there began to develop a much more independent form of Palestinian nationalism and there were a heap of new groups that emerged, um, many of them with a mix of sort of a fairly radical nationalist, guerrillarist politics, um, and some had picked up on the kind of left-wing zeitgeist of the 60s um, and uh, the kind of the left-wing sort of semi-Marxist-y sort of gloss um, that many of the nationalist movements during this period across the world had kind of developed. Um, but as maybe we can get into later, that kind of um, leftism was was Stalinist um, to its bone. Mm. Mm. And so... Okay, let's go through some of those organisations and we'll just we'll spend more time on the ones that are still important mm -hmm. or that their legacy is important today. Yeah. So what? where would you start with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> you read you about the history of the, the Palestinian struggle and, you know, especially if you're a bit sleepy and you're reading some of these books, it's a, like a complete alphabet soup, um, <laughs> you know, or... Like if people have ever seen the Monty Python, Monty Python the kind of life <laughs> yeah. of Brian, which I think must have been directly inspired by um, the names of some of these mm. groups because, you know, there's the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, um, both of whom were Maoist or Stalinist-influenced kind of left nationalist groups. Uh, there was Fatah, which uh, I think it would be useful to talk about. This was um, one of the most significant of the the big um, uh, forces, nationalist forces of the period, um, secular kind of um, nationalist forces. And um, 
then Fatter was, I suppose, vying for control um, in something called the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was the PLO. Um, and so I suppose kind of for our purposes today, uh, you know, maybe it would be best to kind of start with looking at a bit of the history of, of Fatter and the, and the PLO. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay, so the PLO was established in the 60s as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was their relationship with Fatah and how does that kind of Yeah, play well, out? I mean, I suppose kind of, you know, before when I was young, I just sort of assumed that Fatah and the PLO were kind of synonymous, that they were effectively the same thing, which, which they did become. But when the PLO was set up, it was an umbrella organisation uh, and it was established by the Arab regimes themselves because they wanted a Palestinian movement that they could control. Um, but by 1969, um, Fatah had effectively kind of taken over its leadership and had begun to really transform the organisation. And, and in lots of ways, I think Fatah is, is one of those classic nationalist organisations that's really filled with contradictions. Um, they're an organisation that um, has always uh, been organised across class lines, they had a leadership which was comprised of both middle class university students but a very wealthy leadership um, that was made up of many of the um, Palestinian diaspora who were living across the region who had had investments um, that, that had survived the Nakba. Um, so they had that kind of leadership but they also had a rank and file which was filled with um, these ex-peasants, urban poor, the populations of the refugee camps um, who that had been set up after after the Nakba, you know these these people who had been kicked out of their homes that were filled with rage that were living in states that refused to give them any rights of citizenship, um, you know the kind of basic life in many of these camps was really hellish, uh, and so that kind of reality really informed quite a militant and radical approach. Um, so the the wealthy kind of leaderships of Fatah had to really straddle that contradiction. So they their aspiration was that they wanted a Palestinian state that they could rule and control and become the heads of, but they also wanted to keep this rank and file on side. And the rank and file, just like the nationalist aspirations of many working class and poor and impoverished people, is a different kind of freedom. They're, the freedom that they want, that they associate with these nationalist aspirations are, are, are genuine freedom, economic freedom, um, you know, a decent life, a life that they can control themselves where they control their own labour and their own lives. Um, so Fatah effectively kind of organised a mass guerrilla army, initially under, under quite radical slogans, slogans of revolutionary violence. Um, they established camps where... Fedayeen or fighters were trained, and prior to 1970, um, those camps were overwhelmingly in Jordan. And so the kind of period of the late 60s, Fatah launched a series of really high-profile actions which were designed to capture territory um, that Fatah leaders could then declare to be autonomous Palestinian zones. And one of the most dramatic of these actions occurred in um, the East Bank town of Karameh in 1968, when they claimed um, a very dramatic uh, victory over the Israeli military. And it just became one of those kind of moments that really captured 
the imaginations of um, millions across uh, the the region and actually across the world. And um, support for Fatah really grew rapidly from that period and the organisation began to consolidate. Um, in not just two years later, though, there was a really terrible defeat um, for the Palestinians in 1970. This was known as Black September. And the political conclusions which were drawn by the leadership of Fatah was that um, actually more moderation was required and the defeat that they suffered was actually at the hands effectively of the, the Jordanian um, ruling class. So by the 1970s, Fatah then sort of began to alter their, their demands. Um, they declared that the liberation of all of Palestine was off the agenda for the foreseeable future. Uh, Yasser Arafat, who was the leader of, of Fatah and of the PLO, um, now suggested that the goal of the Palestinian movement uh, should just, rather than kind of uh, having those big aspirations, was now much more to just sort of try and gain control over any measly, tiny little part of Palestine that they could um, and that from there they could kind of wage a bigger, broader struggle again. And the logic of that position led them in 1988 to uh, accept Israel's right to exist on stolen Palestinian land. Um, they accepted the argument that Jews and Palestinians could never share a state and that Palestinians should limit their demands uh, to this kind of mini Palestinian state on the occupied territories. And, and that was the known as the two-state solution. And the strategy that they developed to achieve that much moderated goal was essentially negotiations with Israel and with the American imperialist forces uh, with the kind of threat of armed struggle to back up those negotiations. And people might be familiar with um, a kind of piece of theatre that Yasser Arafat engaged in when he um, talked in the United Nations about holding a gun in the one hand and an olive branch in the other, and that kind of became mm. a real emblem of the uh, yeah. approach of this section of the Palestinian leadership for decades to come. Mm. And that's my mem my early memories of mm. knowing anything about Palestine was seeing Yasser Arafat on TV sort of mm. gesticulating and making himself appear, you know, angry and defiant and yet mm. didn't seem to be doing anything. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of uh, media and theatre in that period, I think, around trying to, again, as you say, straddle that kind of contradiction that underpins the PLO and Fatah and continues to do so, of wanting to rule um, but having a population that doesn't want you to just concede to Israel. So mm. the real kind of first wave of mass rebellion Resistance from below, if you like, was known as the first intifada, and this happens in the in the nineteen eighties. Do you want to talk about that next? Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, well, the the first intifada, which is the name, uh, the Arabic name given to this mass rebellion that happened in the late nineteen eighties, and the intifada incidentally means shaking off in Arabic. Um, and ever since I learned that, and then heard that Taylor Swift song, the two things sort of sort of fairly um, awkwardly kind of pop up in my mind together. together now. But, um, <laughs> so the first intifada was this mass rebellion. Um, there was really widespread Palestinian resistance um, and 
you know, lots of Palestinian resistance is kind of, I think, both by the left and, you know, it, by the right has been portrayed as sort of armed conflict or minority struggle. Um, you know, lots of the kind of posters from the 1970s, which, you know, has kind of retro value or something now, have, you know, pictures of the Fed AE and the um, fighters with the AK-47s and the, mm-hmm. you know, um, the the scarves on their heads and so on. But um, the reality of Palestinian struggle, you know, every point uh, has been one of you know and and specifically in the in the periods of intifada has been the involvement of millions of palestinians and um this intifada involved a whole raft of extremely impressive self-organization um so this particular intifada was sparked um in december of 1987 by the murder of a number of palestinian workers by um israelis um, but in the West Bank and Gaza, the preceding years had really been characterised by increasing levels of self-organisation because Israel wasn't sort of providing some basic um, uh, goods and, and services for people and so on. Um, but it, it was also accompanied by um, the development of popular committees, uh, you know, village committees, trade unions, women's organisations, um, and so on. And you know, obviously, like everything in society, these different institutions were places of uh, political contestation and debate. Um, and some were led by Fatah, others were left led by, you know, forces of the left or the Palestine Communist Party, others were led by, um, you know, Islamist forces. But nonetheless, um, they laid the basis for some of the kind of later infrastructure um, that would prove to be really important in the Intifada. And the initial months of the Intifada were characterised by these extremely huge and chaotic mass protests. And I think if you, if anyone went to the Palestine protests um, over the last, in any of the cities across Australia you know, or the world, um, over the last week, you kind of get a sense of the, the um, just the level of intensity and the emotion and the, the political you know, contestation that happens on on any of these protests. I mean, you guys were there. You would probably, yeah, yeah back me up in that. Um, yes, it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Um, but you know, this in, and this intifada, I think, was really characterised um, in it, in its initial phases, at least, by um, that sense of of mass rebellion and. Also, sort of of the imbalance of of the struggle. Uh, probably one of the most famous images from this intifada was, which you guys would have seen, and maybe we could put it up on the show notes or whatever. But of um, a kid uh, on this mm. rubble-filled street with a rock in hand, staring down just the might of this huge Israeli tank and his arms pulled back and he's about to throw this stone and it, it just kind mm. of, you know, it's spine tingling and it gives you a real sense of the dimension of this kind of rebellion, both of the, um, I suppose, of the inequality of forces but also of the depth of bravery of the participants. Um and in particular, the kind of the the bravery of of so many of the young people, young people and women, and there are just amazing images of all these women marching, um, of schoolgirls of throwing stones at soldiers. Of you know, I saw a photo of a number of older women 
um, just carrying baskets of stones on their heads to supply all these younger <laughs> demonstrators with the stones to throw at the military. Um, yeah. You know, all of these women kind of arguing and tussling with soldiers to try and win the release of arrested kids. And women um, played a really, really important role in this intifada. Um, and, and I think that, again, is kind of important given all of the years of Islamophobic crap, which mm. just, you know, tries to insist in the West that, you know, women in the Middle East are, you know, compliant and just listen to their husbands and, you know, wearing a hijab somehow kind of makes you less of a human, less of less capable of, of rebellion and independent thought and resistance and, and so on. Um, and so, yeah, I think that uh, that whole, the, you know, the, the participation of women is, is something to be celebrated really in, in this much, in this first intifada. Um, mm. But also it wasn't just um, women and young people, trade unions and, and workers played a really important role. Um, and there's just a whole range of um, really cool stories from the intifada, like um, the popular committees which were set up to kind of run and, and coordinate different elements of the resistance basically kind of took lists of, of all of the different workers in a town or a village and the different jobs that they could do and kind of allocated them to different tasks um, for the rebellion. Um, and so apparently as, as part of um, one of the kind of strikes, which was, again, kind of this cross-class strike, but it involved shutting down a bunch of the, the shops um, the Palestinian shops, and so the um, Palestinians would es effectively kind of chain the doors of their shops shut um, as part of the strike, and then the Israelis would come and, um, you know, basically kind of open the doors. And so the popular committees organised all of the blacksmiths in the um, in the cities to just be positioned across the entire city to kind of constantly go and solder these doors and shut and open, you know, according to the needs of, of the mobilisations, um, which is which is great, you know, and, and much more broadly kind of food production and distribution was taken over by the popular committees. Um, Childcare was extended to all hours of the day and night. So many women who had, you know, been um, stuck to their kids could much more actively participate in the struggle. Uh, there were heaps of arenas of open political debate and these were organised in schools and universities. It's kind of like in, in so many revolutionary moments when there's just millions of people involved, it just activates and gives the population a real sense of their own capacities to, to decide on life. Um, and, and I think mm. that's one of the really wonderful things um, about, about this rebellion. Um, did you guys want to add anything? I, Liam, I heard Liam make a little sound. No, that was just me uh, grunting along. Oh, in okay. <laughs> <laughs> This is classic Liam on the podcast. Everyone loves Liam's grunting of agreement. <laughs> it's very encouraging. Today of the revolution So this is all. This all sounds amazing, but like, okay, um, how did it go wrong? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I suppose you know, as like any political struggle, there are political debates, and often whichever force kind of goes into the struggle, the strongest 
um, often emerges out of it the strongest. And um, unfortunately, the force that went into this struggle the strongest, um, the most coordinated, the most organised, that uh, controlled many of the kind of in infrastructural elements to the rebellion um, was Fatah. And uh, mm. they tacked left during the uprising and they managed to then take the lead of much of it. And so they took heaps of that energy and verve and zeal and struggle and began to start to kind of channel it into much more moderate channels um, of negotiations. And, you know, after a lot of repression, Israeli repression again, um, the PLO uh, basically launched another round of, of negotiations and this round of negotiations resulted in the Oslo Accords. So people might have heard of them. They're effectively an agreement which was brokered by the USA between Israel and the Fatah leadership of the PLO. And uh, on the face of it, those negotiations were about moving towards this putative two-state solution, this dreamland from which, you know, a Palestinian state would be would be won. But in reality, all of this just further entrenched Israeli power and control. So formally, Israel moved away from direct control in the West Bank, uh, but what actually happened is that they found them in the um, they found themselves a partner in repression in the newly developed Palestinian Authority, and this Palestinian Authority effectively took over policing the Palestinian movement um, for Israel. Um, and Tufik Kadad, who's a, a wonderful Palestinian Marxist, who's actually going to be speaking at the Socialism Conference that Socialist Alternative is ho hosting in Sydney um, later in the year. Um, he, he said that Oslo effectively turned the fatter Qaeda into the policemen of the neo-colonialist regime. Um, he called them the police of the Bantistans. And this kind of layer began to develop into a really corrupt and increasingly wealthy ruling class in the West Bank. Um, and there are all kinds of stories about the levels of corruption and, and the, the levels of just extreme wealth. I mean, um, you know, I read some story about, you know, the number of times that Yasser Arafat's wife went to Paris to shop for handbags while, you know, the, the population of uh, the West Bank was becoming, you know, increasingly more unemployed, you know, malnutrition was rife. Um, there's a story about Mohammed Dalin, who, who was the head of the, um, the, P, the PA's police forces, um, who actually built a palace that was so ornate and so gilded that it sunk into the sand from the weight of all the kind of marble and gold. Um, and meanwhile, you know, again, the kind of contrast couldn't be greater. There are these, um, mm. you know, collaborators, these this Palestinian ruling class um, that is getting more and more wealthy. Meanwhile, the working class and poor Palestinians were finding life just in incredibly, incredibly difficult and suffering under this kind of dual repression, the repression of the Palestinian Authority and the repression of Israel in the West Bank um, and then in Gaza, you know, just, again, kind of increasing levels of immiseration. And so all of that, you know, so kind of set the scene for further rounds of struggle. Yeah, so all that capitulation did nothing for mm. the Palestinians. And, okay, so then we get to the Second Intifada mm. um, that happens in 2000. Mm. What was the um, catalyst for that? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's kind of been interesting thinking about the similarities between the second intifada and now in that they were both the kind of both sparked by these provocations by the um, Israeli ruling class um, around the religious site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Um, so the Second Intifada was effectively sparked by Ariel Sharon, who was a, a war hero for um, the Israelis who had overseen some of the most brutal massacres um, of Palestinian refugees. Uh, and he um, basically kind of engaged in this provocation of, of marching into the Al-Aqsa compound. Um, and that sparked a range of uh, significant demonstrations, riots, protest movements, um, you know, and again, I think, you know, similar to last time, a real breadth of mobilisation. Um, but there were some really significant differences between the first and the second intifadas. The Oslo years had left a significant legacy. The people of Gaza and the West Bank were really bitter and frustrated and all of those promises of peace came to nothing and people felt much more angry and um, one Palestinian writer kind of described it as um, vengeful, you know, and, and that was the kind of mood and spirit in some ways of this, this rebellion. Um, the Palestinian Authority, they held on to power but they were not popular. And in some ways, this kind of uprising was as much against the um, living conditions which had been imposed by both Israel and the PA in West Bank um, as it was just against kind of Israeli occupation. Um, but as I said before, you know, it was, it was kind of more bitter and in many ways um, the kind of popular rebellion became much more militarised and violent much more quickly than the First Intifada. And this was a period when Hamas, um, and Islamic Jihad um, emerged as much more significant kind of political force. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Like you just mentioned Hamas mm -hmm. there. Um, I mean, a lot of listeners are probably thinking, you know, that everyone has heard of Hamas, obviously, and the rockets mm -hmm. and so on. Could you maybe, that's probably a good moment then to, to tell us a bit about who they are and what yeah. they represent. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the right-wing stereotypes in Australia and in the West more generally kind of have uh, the Palestinians as just, especially in Gaza, as just these kind of crazed Islamists who just, you know, vengefully seeking the blood of, of um, Israelis. But um, the kind of the development of Hamas, um, you know, was obviously not that. And uh, it was much more explicable uh, as uh, a political force which emerged in response to all of the corruption and uh, complicity of the previous forces. So um, they emerged uh, really in the kind of the period of after the first intifada, um, but they really came to the fore during the second intifada and um, presented themselves as incorruptible, as determined fighters, as um, capable of resisting Israel right down the line. Um, politically, they had refused to uh, basically back down on a whole series of the demands that Fatah had backed down around. And that kind of prestige and that positioning uh, led them to being democratically elected in Gaza in uh, some of the elections that happened there in 2006. And then that, in turn, 
led Israel um, to wage war, a major offensive against the Gaza Strip. And then the effects of that have then contributed to the sense that Hamas is kind of under siege, is fighting this rearguard battle, and it kind of then gives the impression that Hamas is actually a more radical opponent of Israel than it is. Mm. Um, and Hamas's um, resistance is always centred around a military struggle and they're hostile to much more broad um, working class kind of re revolutionary um, popular aspirations. And that kind of struggle, we can kind of come back to this later, but that kind of struggle really has no chance of defeating Israel. They are mm. an impoverished military and, you know, as we've kind of seen in, in the last round of struggle, they have these rockets which can barely make a dent on one of the most sophisticated, uh, you know, iron domes in the world, you know, this mm. kind of shield which um, militarily protects uh, Israel from, from this rocket fire. Um, but more generally, they're just up against one of the most sophisticated armies in the world. Um, mm. And so that kind of strategy is just doomed to failure. But um, yeah. even beyond that, they politically over the last few years have kind of increasingly converged with Fatah. So in 2017, Hamas released a new charter which conceded on many of the historic points of difference with Fatah, sort of most notably recognising the right of Israel to exist. And despite this political shift, Hamas um, have been regularly rebuffed by the Fatah leadership and, and they were again recently. Um, and so in some ways, the kind of the dynamic uh, is the same with Hamas in Gaza as it was with Fatah in the West Bank, uh, except for the fact that the situation for the population of Gaza is, is sort of even more devastating than it is in the West mm. Bank. People are just desperate. And I think that desperation kind of swing two ways. Um, it leads to and has the potential to lead to increasing frustration with Hamas, and, and we've seen that over the past while. Um, to the degree that new political currents can can attempt to kind of break through and emerge, and we can maybe talk about some of them in a sec. But mm. it also means that there can be increasing pressure, which is put on Hamas to just do something, to, to seem to be doing something, mobilising something, and I think those kind of recent rounds of rocket fire are really evidence of that pressure. And I don't know if you saw, but last night after the ceasefire a couple of nights ago, Hamas has um, been basically kind of parading their militants through the streets of Gaza in defiance, in, in, in an attempt to kind of say, we're still here, we're still going to fight, we're still going to mobilise. Um, and mm -hmm. they've been arguing that this ceasefire is, is a victory for Palestinian resistance and, and more particularly for their strategy, I think, of resistance. Mm -hmm. It's, it seems to be like, a, a, as you say, kind of parallel mm. in some ways with the history of groups like mm. Fatah. And, you know, I was thinking about Hamas, you know, even before, or I guess when they first started this latest round of rocket fire, um, you know, we'd seen the mass protests around Jerusalem and Sheikh mm. Jarrah. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, Hamas are hostile to any broad popular struggle that they don't mm. control. And I just think like the, you know, like the, in the midst of the sort of popular uprising that's brewing, you know, inside mm. Israel, uh, Hamas didn't do anything that would have pointed in, in a direction of kind of building on that or spreading mm. that, you know, like the comparison between what they're doing now and, you know, the thing about the Great March of mm. Return 
in 2019 or whatever it was when, you know, thousands of people inside Gaza, these courageous actions to just march on the mm. fences, you know, which Hamas then tried to claim credit for organizing. But I think there's some murkiness around that from what I understand anyway. But but they, they haven't done anything yeah. like that. You know, I think it's an important point and that the absence of that strategy that is based on, um, I mean, there's all the problems that it's just like the political concessions, but also the absence in the strategy of anything that's around popular mobilizations and, uh, you know, popular struggle um, points to the direction of, you know, well, it raises the question about is there a, a sort of genuine mm. left that we mm. can look to? Is there, you know, um, something, you know, it, some kind of group like a Marxist left uh, that that does actually have this kind of strategy of, of mass popular yeah. mobilizations? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll answer that. And, but just kind of it's also it's not just a hostility to popular kind of rebellion. It's also no orientation towards working class rebellion. And I think yeah. that matters because Hamas, yeah. like, you know, Fatah before it was, is also kind of connected into other Arab regimes across the region, which are very afeared of their own populations um, and their own uprisings. So, yeah, that's, that's something to think about there. I mean, yeah. I kind of mentioned a few of the different, uh, you know, the alphabet soup of different um, mm-hmm. Marxist organisations from the, the kind of 70s onwards. And most of these don't exist in any kind of serious force today. Um, and I, I won't really have time to kind of go through all of them, um, you know, in a lot of detail because, you know, there's a lot of historic detail and debates between them and splits and, and fusions and, and so on. Um, but I think it's probably worthwhile just kind of giving a few of the different, um, you know, out broad outlines of problems with them. So, um, you know, most of them were uh, adherents of absolutely terrible Stalinism, um, which meant that uh, both the PFLP and the DFLP were at times under the direct orders of Moscow, which effectively meant that they kind of served the geopolitical interests of the ruling class in Russia. And, you know, if yeah. uh, Russia said, you know, or the, the leaders of the Soviet Union said jump, you know, they would say how high. Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, um, the the kind of Stalinist worldview meant that um, many Stalinist organisations that were involved in in national liberation struggles basically supplanted the working class for other and different uh, class forces to lead the movement for national liberation, and this led um, the both of the fronts, the PFLP and the DFLP, to emphasise. Um, like all of the other Palestinian nationalist organisations in, in a way, but they really emphasised the guerrilla struggle of a minority mm. as the primary strategy for Palestinian liberation. And then finally, um, they both, while at times they sort of vied for more space within the PLO, they never really challenged for the leadership of the movement um, because they wanted to kind of maintain for all of the debates and fractiousness and internecine warfare, you know, political warfare, they wanted to maintain some level of adherence um, within the the um, kind of broad framework of this nationalist rebellion. And this essentially meant that they tailed Fatah at almost every crucial juncture down the line. And those kind of politics, like the politics of many nationalist uh, organisations and movements 
over decades and continents, um, the impact of that Stalinism was just so devastating and so great that the left is really paying for a lot of that today. Mm. I mean, it's, yeah, like, I mean, in so many ways, all of us around the world paying for the legacy, you know, the legacy of mm. Stalinism. And, but when you describe it in relation to Palestine, it's it just seems like such a terrible kind of situation that, that we found ourselves in. So the question everyone's <laughs> going to be asking when they listen to this is, well, you know, is there light at the mm. end of the tunnel? What yeah. hope is there? Well, I think the hope is is there. I think the hope is in those rebels that we've seen on the streets and, mm. you know, facing down the tanks in the kids with the stones in their hand, in the people who are fighting the fascists on the streets of East Jerusalem, um, with the women, men, children, elderly who protest week after week against the demolitions of their homes, against settlers taking them over. Um, mm. And I think what is required and, and hopefully what we're starting to see a bit of at the moment is this kind of broader struggle which is not um, co-opted by any of those compromised forces. And, uh, you know, and you mentioned the Great March of Return before and that was a really wonderful little indication of the possibilities. So just for people who don't remember it or didn't read about it at the time, nearly every single Friday and some days in between, between the 30th of March on 2018 and December in 2019, protesters in Gaza took to the militarised fences, those huge borders um, which are armed um, and besieging them, uh, and they they protested along those with these um, protest encampments. They had tents for food, games, medical care, schools were erected. Mm -hmm. People stayed for months um, at a time engaging in this, you know, attempted um, breakthrough to effectively kind of declare that um, the walls and borders which had been erected by Israel in 1948 had no right to be there that um, the refugees who lived across the region had every right to return home and that with their bodies rather than with their negotiating skills or their guns, um, they were going to insist upon the um, bringing down of those walls. Um, mm -hmm. And so this march movement of, of, of marches, um, you know, took place along that whole time. Um, and I just want to read a little quote because I think it's a kind of a beautiful encapsulation of, mm. of what the march was about. Um, this was from one of the participants. Um, and she said, On the first day of protests, I saw an unforgettable scene. I saw tens of thousands of women, men, children and older people around me, even elderly women on crutches, slowly making their way over a kilometre to take part in this unifying national event. Um, you know, and it was just... Yeah, mm -hmm. a, a, I think a wonderful kind of display. Do you do you remember it? Do you have any? I remember it so clearly. I mean, I don't remember no. that exact that no. quote, but yeah, the great the great marches of return. Yeah, for so long, uh, yeah, it, you know, um, inspiring kind of event because the courage. You know, we often talk about the courage the courage of the mm -hmm. Palestinians. There's so many slogans and memes about you know heroes fight like mm -hmm. Palestinians and stuff. You know, 
And um, yeah, the, those marches in 2018, 2019 just proved that week after week, and because you know they were up against such just in you know the odds. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that uh, that a mass march would actually be able to to penetrate mm-hmm. the borders uh, was always you know uh, you know fanciful, really. But but the courage of people knowing that that this act of defiance mm-hmm. mattered and that they were not going to just be prisoners anymore in in gaza you know and just yeah i mean yeah so wonderful some of the most amazing scenes yeah. i've ever seen yeah and, and i think some of that same sort of spirit is starting to pop up now and again but not yeah. um you know centered quite so much in the population of gaza but amongst um sections of the palestinian populations that haven't rebelled in years and the struggle is sort of starting to link up between the historically divided sections of the Palestinian population. So um, one activist I, I was reading the other day actually described what we're seeing at the moment as smashing more than seven decades of territorial fragmentation. Mm. So um, really mm. for the first time since 1948, in, it's all of historic Palestine that has arisen at the same time politically yep. for itself. Um, and I think, um, you know, as this activist was kind of describing all of that constitutes a really um, important disavowal of the idea of this Palestinian authority Um, and that's just such a wonderful development Um, and so effectively kind of what it means at the moment is that the people who are living inside the 1948 borders of the Zionist entity, people living in Jerusalem who are suffering from the ongoing and systematic discrimination of living in a state that regards them as second-class citizens um, that these people are rising up. Um, it, yeah. it means that the population of the West Bank, a population that's dealt with this corrupt Palestinian leadership that has jailed and policed and tortured them, as well as all the indignities and violence of the Israeli state, those people are also rising up. Um, the populations of, uh, uh, with the populations of East Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah, it, it also means that the population of Gaza under rocket fire and, you know, suffering Mm. from the death of their children, these people are organising marches and turning funerals into protests. Um, And I don't know if you also saw, but uh, many of the Palestinian refugees at the borders have also been mobilising. So, you know, hundreds Mm. of Palestinians and Arabs in Jordan and Lebanon have been attempting to Mm. cross the borders for the first time in Mm. in generations. They've been attempting to cross those borders to get back to Palestine. Um, And as we kind of talked about before, Mm. There was this general strike which happened um, just a few days ago now. Um, and, you know, there's some estimation that it, it hurt the Israeli economy to the tune of, of $40 million, which is, is significant, obviously, because lots of Palestinians do heaps of the low-paid shit work in Israel. Um, and when yeah. they refused to work, it, it had an impact on construction and, and, you know, some kind of industries. But I think more importantly than that, in a way, is that it indicated a possible opening for a new kind of mass politics informed by a different kind of of, um, political approach and one that has not been compromised by the decades of corruption in dealing with Israel and the USA um, and Arab state. Um, And um, just before we end, I thought it would be great to read just from this manifesto of dignity and hope, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's being spread across Palestine at the moment now, Um, and this is what they say. This intifada will be a long one in the streets of Palestine and in the streets around the world, an intifada that fights the hand of injustice wherever it tries to reach, 
that fights the battens of cruel regimes wherever they try to strike. This is an intifada of bared chests and foreheads held high with revolutionary goals, deep knowledge and understanding, and the organisational toil and commitment of every individual and collective in the face uh, of the bullets of the Israeli occupation wherever they are fired, which is just mm. a, a, you know absolutely kind of beautiful, defiant um, way of talking. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Um, we probably want to start to, yeah. I guess, move towards wrapping yeah. things up. Uh, this is obviously the second uh, in, a, in a sort of series, mm-hmm. I guess, now of uh, episodes uh, around Palestine. And in our first episode on the topic last week, uh, you'll remember we spoke a bit about, um, you know, what would liberation, what would it take to, to really win liberation for the Palestinians? What does that mean? What would it look like? How do we mm. get there? And that it kind of needs or it opens the discussion for us around the broader Arab working class across the region. Um, and, you know, we talk about sort of Arab revolutions across the, across the region, that the, the road to liberation for the Palestinians runs through mm-hmm. Cairo and, and mm-hmm. so on. Um, would you like to go back and talk a bit more about yeah, that? Well, I mean, you know, as we kind of said before, the Palestinians can't win militarily. They clearly also can't win by relying on the Arab states. They can't win by negotiating with the imperial powers. And so really the only force that has both the power and the interest in fighting genuinely alongside them, um, and not just for Palestinian liberation, but for their own liberation because their liberation mm-hmm. is actually bound up in, um, in, in the Palestinian liberation, is the broader regional working class. And it's an absolutely mighty force. Um, so if you think of the various different industries, um, the sectors in the region, the millions of oil workers in Iraq and Iran, the millions of textile workers in Egypt, the transportation and port workers in Suez, which is still one of the major transportation hubs of world trade, um, those workers just have an absolutely immense amount of industrial power. And they're also a force who've historically displayed their solidarity with the Palestinians. So, um you know, the, the Palestinian struggle symbolises a lot. And, you know, the the kind of um, uh, sympathy demonstrations, the solidarity demonstrations, which are also um, not just sympathy mobilisations, they're demonstrations which are against their own ruling classes often, which repress their demonstrations, um, but they also indicate a hostility to the role that Israel plays in the region, which is to act as the kind of capitalist cop. Um, mm. And so every uprising that we've talked about today has been met with huge um, uprisings across the region. Indeed, you just have to kind of look this time around, these massive demonstrations that we've seen in Iraq, in Yemen, Kuwait, Pakistan, Morocco, I've probably forgotten a heap of them, but these, um, mm. you know, huge demonstrations. Um, and some of them were actually in places where the Arab regime's um, have more recently normalised relations with Israel, and I think that's a really significant development. Um, so I suppose, you know, regional revolution um, is is the only solution against not only Israel but also against their own regimes. Um, and, you know, I think in the last uh, major round of Arab uprisings in the Arab Spring, you know, the fact that in country after country the same slogans were ado- adopted um, and again, uh, if you've seen any of the footage from the um, the mobilisations uh, across uh, you know Australia and Palestine um, 
at the moment the the old slogan of the people demand the overthrow of the regime or the people demand the overthrow of Israel, you know, is kind of taken up um, again and yeah. again. And I think that points to a real um, unanimity of feeling that it would be possible to mobilise across the broader Arab working class and Arab world. Um, and so, you know, we have to put our hope there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, it's a perfect place for us to kind of draw that whole discussion to a conclusion too, to think about, well, that, you know, the the what what Marxists have always mm. said, uh, you know, it applies here, that the, the, the main division in the Arab world is mm. class and that workers' revolution is the key to liberating all of humanity. And, um, and that's, you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot more kind of detail and nuance we can draw out of that, but that basic idea I think plays out so clearly in uh, getting our head around what's the potential mm. is for, for freedom in the yeah. Middle East, you know. And yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, wrap okay. it up there. Uh, people will have noticed that Roz has <laughs> vanished. <laughs> Roz, she had to step out of the room uh, urgently. So, I've uh, ra- quickly stepped into the hosting. Um, it wasn't a coup. It wasn't a silent coup where I just seized power. Congratulations. Uh, I just, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I'll use my power for good and not for evil. Um but yeah, I, I hope I managed to bring the episode to some kind <laughs> of resolution, did. some Absolutely kind of good ending. And um, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, and as Roz always, oh, well, thank you for joining uh-huh. us, Vashti. Thank you. And as uh-huh. Roz always uh-huh. says, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. What inspires you about the Palestinian struggle? Um... You know, they're some of the most, like, oppressed people on earth. And despite, like, 73 years of just experiencing, like, dispossession and genocide, they can still struggle with, you know, such, like, might. And, yeah, it, like, inspires me. And I think it should inspire everyone else to um, to, to be just just as um, ferocious in the struggle because we don't face nearly the same amount of oppression as them. Yet if they can do it, why shouldn't we? What inspires you about the Palestinian struggle? I think what's most inspiring is... No matter how fucking aggressive Israel is, no matter how many times they bomb Gaza, the people rise and fight back. Like, you know, I followed the Tamimi family for a number of years in Nabi Saleh, Ahed, Basem. You know, that family, I think, like, is the archetype example of what Palestinians are like, you know, fighting back no matter what the circumstances are, rather fight and die, you know, fighting for that freedom. They never live on their knees. And I think that's the kind of world that we want to see, you know, a world world without oppression. These people show us the way to fight for it. I just think the fact that it's been a struggle that's been going for over like 70 years now and it's still ongoing and still just like seeing everybody getting out in the streets after all this time and just the fact that they're not giving up. Um, I think it's inspiring because they're, they've been going, it's, they've been resisting for over 70 years now, yeah. Uh, I think like a, the constant 73 year long struggle against apartheid and oppression, the refusal to ever give up. I mean, I think in Palestine what they call it is Samud, just like that concept of continuously fighting for what they believe in, fighting for their rights no matter what, and no matter what the oppressors do to them. Um, The fact that they don't give up and they stick up for themselves, and the fact that it creates solidarity all around the world. Seeing the crowd here is just amazing. Um, uh, All over the world there's been a lot of uh, genocide has been happening, and uh, uh, as, as I'm from Sri Lanka and uh, uh, from t- 
the struggles we had for Tamil Elam is very similar to Palestine, uh, what's now going through. So it's very much uh, in touch with my heart and uh, I don't want any other country to go through the same struggle that we've been through. So uh, that's, we will be uh, there to in solidarity and support Palestine until it's free. Um, the way that the whole, a whole new generation has risen up all across Palestine and 48 Palestine as well. Anything else you want to add? Uh, ceasefire is not enough. Uh, peace is not freedom and liberation for the Palestinians.